Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. That I'm human too, and I'm not going to have all the answers, and I'm not going to do everything right. I, I don't even sign up for that. Um, all I can do is be a human being, doing the best that I can, and I probably will fail. Um, but I deserve grace, just like I extend grace. I deserve love, just like I you know, extend love, and I love the idea of having a omnidirectional mentorship is what we establish at Better Youth, because at some point I am the student too, right? I'm not always the teacher. And other times you can be the teacher and you can be the student, but it takes the pressure off of having to kind of play this super savior, super woman role in the lives of young people that really just need you to show up as their authentic self and be as real as you can with all of your flaws and all of your perfections. Because that's what makes us complicated and beautiful human beings. And just showing up as, as you and, and admitting, you know, that's the key to humility is admitting, I don't, I don't get it right all the time. I don't have all the right answers. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Sid Stewart. She's an artist, filmmaker, and poet, and the founder of Better Youth. It's a nonprofit organization which uses mentoring and media arts to give foster youth and community youth more creative confidence and self-confidence helping kids get to know who they really are. Here's Sid Stewart. Hello, I'm here with Sid Stewart. Hello, good people. Oh, hi there. Okay, tell me who you are, where you're from, how were you raised, what's the family of origin? Who am I and where was I raised? Okay, so I'm a bit of a, a nomad. So I was raised in Ohio went to school, decided I didn't want to go to medical school. You decided you didn't want to go to medical school? Yeah. Up until decided, then you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, yeah, for sure. So um, my senior year of college, my father passed away from cancer. So um, it just completely changed my whole life. Like it totally, it took me back to ground zero. And I really, you know, I had an encounter with a doctor there and she she just, she made me not want to be a doctor. So, um, <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. And I think I was trying to prove something to my father the whole time. So it was almost like a release too. It was like, um, an excuse to go be rebellious. So I declared myself an artist and moved to Atlanta and hung out with my uncle, who's my dad's brother for a year writing poetry Mm, um, in Atlanta. Right. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. a poet. I'm a filmmaker. And so from there, I had 300 bucks in my pocket and I moved to New York City. 
And oh, no, um, really? Wow. Yeah, I moved to New York City, which I would never do that again with $300. But I ended up securing an apartment. I had left my checkbook back in Atlanta, but I convinced this woman that I was a hard worker and that I would you know, do everything I could do to pay my rent. So I got a job at Macy's and I never looked back. And so I got involved in like theater and writing and acting. And that was like my form of therapy. Um, it was mm-hmm. art therapy. And um, yeah, and just got involved in community organizations, processing my grief and completely disoriented in the world. And at the time I was um, like kind of estranged from my mother too. So we have a very strained relationship. And so I really felt lost. And the only thing that grounded me was art, was writing and acting and theater and finding my center in the world through, through art. Yeah, it's amazing how art can do that. I feel that way very much yeah, as well. Definitely. And then what led you to start working with kids? Well, in New York as an artist, I had a friend who was like, you know, you'd be good working with kids. I was like, I don't even like kids. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't even like kids. Um, and he's like, no, I think you'd be good at it. And I thought he was just like, like, no. And then I needed a job. I think in New York, I still wanted to audition. And, you know, it's a it's common knowledge that, you know, going to work with kids is like an easy job, you know, kind of whatever. So I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I need a job to give me some money, you know, a real easy job. So I applied to work in the projects of Harlem in New York, teaching poetry through um, the New York Housing Authority. And I worked in like two different housing complexes. And that also completely changed my life. I found a form of giving back out of, out of whatever I had. What, you know, kids don't have that that many expectations. They just expect you to show up. And that's all I could do. But when I showed up, all I had to give was me. And that was enough. That's a lot, actually. Yeah, it was enough. And I remember these kids, they were like rowdy. They weren't into poetry. So I connected poetry and hip hop and, you know, spoke their language. And um, there would be days I couldn't make it sometimes. So I'd have a sub. And I remember this little kid rolling up on me on his bike I was like, Miss Stewart, where you know, where were you? You weren't in, you know, weren't in class. And I didn't really realize the impact I was having until he literally rolled up on me in his like little BMX bike and was like, <laughs> Where have you been? You know? And um that was a moment that I'll never forget. And I realized whatever you have is enough. You have your experience, you know, you have your life and you have your knowledge and your wisdom to share. Right. So that led to you founding Better Youth? Yeah. That did. So I was in the basement of my church and I wanted to give back. And um, I just felt like we were just doing kind of these superficial things in the community, not really, really making a difference in this particular church. And I just got together with some of my friends and we went to the Ronald McDonald house because my father had passed away from cancer. And so I got together with some artist friends that were musicians, that were poets and reached out and just said, Hey, you know, I'm starting this organization and we just want to come and give back whatever we have. And that led to a, you know, multi-year partnership with the Ronald McDonald house. And we do these monthly engagements. And then I think through that, I healed to a certain degree. That, that was the only thing I could focus on, but I did, did start better youth that way. And at that same time, did you, did it help you heal things with your mother or no? Not really. I think writing really helped me to do that and therapy. (laughs) Long years of therapy. Yeah. So not quite. 
I had this kind of disjointed relationship with her, a lot of resentment um, for her being kind of absent um, or as I perceived absent in my life. My mom had a lot of mental health issues growing up, which I just didn't understand. I didn't understand her journey of what it took to kind of be a single mom. Even though I had a great relationship with my father, they didn't, you know, they just didn't gel. So I was bouncing back and forth between two households. And I could probably just blame my mother, you know, because that's the easiest thing to do. So I really didn't respect her journey at the time until I was much older and could understand, you know, being on my own, what it, what it takes to be a parent. Mm-hmm. And then you were called deeper into it, you said. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what does that mean? So when I got to Los Angeles, I was still pursuing, you know, my career and the land of make-believe, as we call Hollywood. And again, oh, what'll be great? Getting a getting a cushy job, you know, and an after school program. Yeah, great. I have my mornings free. And so I ended up working for an agency that sent me to quote unquote like the worst school that they had, right? And so I'm the new kid on the block, not from LA. And so they sent me to Jordan High School in Watts. Nobody wanted to go to the school. They wanted to go to all the other schools. There wasn't a history of after-school programming there. And um, so, yeah, I quote-unquote got stuck with Jordan. But what they didn't know, it was a blessing. So they actually blessed me in sending me there because I met John A. Rivers there. I met Raquel Wilson there. And I've known these kids for over you know 12 years. And so, yeah, I started, I started working for LAUSD's Beyond the Bell program. And got pulled in because I felt that there was a need that wasn't being filled. They had all these great programs, but the kids, particularly foster youth, needed consistency in programs. And also adults that just were around longer than like, you know, a semester or a quarter for a program. Yeah, so mentorship. I felt like particularly foster youth, they needed mentorship. And so I formed my own organization to provide that. Right. So did you have this dream, like, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to build it from the ground up on your own, get other people involved or what? Yeah. At first, yeah. I just had this crazy dream, like, yeah, I'm going to just do this. But um, Better Youth has always been youth centric. So all you need is like a group of kids in a room with like some pizza and a curriculum, you know, if you really want to like break it down to, you know, and then you build from there, obviously. But it's really about the kids, you know, and, and providing something that's needed, something that attracts them and, and, and engages them in a place where they want to be. You meet them where they are. And at that, at that time, all I had to give was art. You know, I knew filmmaking. I knew writing. I knew, I knew that. I had my experience and my connection to, to Hollywood and the creative economy. And I was smart. You know, I could find curriculum that worked and build around it. And I had a, you know, could order Pizza Hut. And that's pretty much what I had. Right. So you, you discovered that the population you were serving in general was kids in care. Yes. I hadn't. Yes. You know, at first we say, oh, at-risk youth, you know, vulnerable youth. But the youth that I was attracting were foster youth, mm-hmm. still in care, who needed what I had to give. I needed to become the mother that I was looking for. And what I had to give is what they needed. And it was like lock and key kind of relationship, which has lasted over 15 years. Part of the reason why I want you as a guest 
you mentioned already Jonah Rivers and Raquel Wilson and many other people whom I've spoken to rave about you. Mm. You know, they they just mm. say that you like you pick them up out of the rubble mm. and just let them launch. Mm. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But you know what? I think that some of these youth have pathways and they have assigned people. I, I believe strongly in God. And so I can't hide that in any interview that I have. But I think we're not meant to do life alone. And I think some of these kids, when they feel alone, it's just not the design of the universe or God's plan for you to just be out there 10 toes in the streets without anybody to care for you. That's just not the design of love. And I always tell John, John A., and all of the youth to operate in love. And so I think it's our obligation to demonstrate what love looks like so that in their life they can recognize it. And I think some youth are just assigned. They're, they're my assignments and I know them when I see them. Raquel was one of them. Um, Jane was one of them. In fact, Jane, I used to hide from her. She was so <laughs> motivated. I would hide around corners like, here comes that girl again. You know, Jane is just on fire and so hungry for opportunity that that's how we, you know, we tell that, I tell that story all the time, but it was an opportunity that she wanted and she ended up getting it. She ended up going to Atlanta to spend time with Usher and she was selected out of like a thousand kids. It was like they picked two from Jordan and she was one of them. But every time I see a young person that is assigned to me, I know it. It's almost like a glow around them. That's like, oh, that's one of mine. Right. So this is not something you dreamt of when you were a kid or a teenager or even as a very young woman. No. But it became a calling. It is a calling. Yeah. And you actually mentioned a a terrific phrase. You've turned purpose into passion. I have turned purpose into passion because before my passion, oh, I'm going to go be an actress. I'm going to go be a writer. I'm going to blow up in Hollywood, you know? And that is my passion still. But I think if your dream, I think Ava DuVernay said, if your dream doesn't include other people, but your passion, I'm paraphrasing, and it's not big enough right? Like the door needs to be big enough for me to bring people through the door with me. You know, at the ground level, John A is a founding member of Better Youth. So is Raquel and Breon and Jeremy and Autumn because, and Latrice, they've all been there and they contribute to Better Youth, right? It's got youth in its name because they're all contributing to, to the organization and how it serves them and how it serves other youth. Right. So what kind of programs do you have that that are involved? Because I know you have quite a few. You also have Real to Real that's have, associated with it. Yes. What are the things, what are the kids going through? So we have our flagship program, which is called AIM and Inspire. Um, so it's an acronym that stands for Animation, Interactive Gaming, Media, and New Media. That's um, smart. Wow. AIM and Inspire. So we have a pre-apprenticeship program right now of 30 weeks of training, professional development, and workforce development. And it's deployed in three sessions. So career exploration, and then there's kind of like a production phase where they're working on a capstone project. And then um, there's post-production exhibition and distribution where they go around and they talk about their work. Um, and so we build creative competence at the, at the root of our work and, uh, you know, addressing diversity, equity, inclusion in the creative economy, you know, um, taking black and brown children, particularly foster youth, and placing them in positions of empowerment and leadership. I love that phrase, creative confidence, because a lot of times people have the creative impulse, the spur, the interest, mm-hmm. but they don't have the confidence. Right, right. And, and that's all that it's about, 
It's, right. And you help them grow that by giving them oh, skills yeah. and affirming what they're doing. Giving them skills and validating their voice. Validating. Right. So mm-hmm. our key is validating. You can give a kid certificates, you can give them degrees, but they don't feel worthy inside. They don't feel validated that their voice has value. Then they grow up with all these accolades and never knowing who they truly are. So we trust them. We give them responsibilities. We hold them accountable and we have um, high expectations for them. We trust that we trust them, right? We, we, that's at the end of the day. We love them and we trust them. And we give them responsibilities that reflect that. How did you become so wise? Because you're, you're a young woman. You sound like you've learned so much mm-hmm. about how to take care of kids well. You know what? Um, going back to that relationship with my mom, I used to resent her for, you know, she was sick a lot of my life and and I'm still, I'm her caregiver now. And I kind of resented that growing up, kind of having to be the parent in the relationship. But now it's, it's what's defined me, right? It it is my story. And so I had to embrace my narrative, um, which I tell young people all the time. And I think being 10 or eight, having to, you know, open the door for my mom because she had arthritis and she couldn't drive and I had to start the car for her or, you know, things that I had to do at a young age just gave me this this wisdom. But, you know, wisdom comes from God. So again, I can't take credit for something that's a gift to me. And I think when you have a large responsibility over someone's life, when God puts you in charge of someone's life, he's going to give you the skills and attributes, right, as a steward to make sure you have the wisdom and the, the information to be um, a good caregiver. And I think when you take care of foster youth, particularly, you have to be a responsible person and you need a certain skill set that is beyond you. This is a difficult question, but I'm just curious what your take on it. Why do you think there are so many foster homes, foster parents that are not serving children, that are actually not looking after them well? I don't know if that's difficult. I think what's hard to swallow is the truth. I think that the foster care business is um, lucrative. I think it's a business. And I think people know that they can make money off of the backs of vulnerable children and they take advantage of them. And that's the, that's the reality of exploitation. And that's why this um, child welfare system needs to be reformed because it's about economics. I mean, there's social workers that don't do their jobs properly. So, you know, they go into an office every day. So someone at home disconnected from a system that's disjointed, we expect them to care based on what? A check? (laughs) I mean, I honestly think you should have a license to be able to even produce children. That's what my mom thinks, and she's a therapist. (laughs) Now, she had 10 kids. She had no business having 10 kids, by the way. (laughs) She says now, after the fact, that just like, why do you not need a license to have a kid, but you need a license to drive a car? To drive a car. Absolutely. But most of America would totally disagree with that. Oh, say I'm it's sure. your God-given right to have a child. It's your God-given right to be a mother and a father, right? It's, there's a commandment that says, honor your mother and father. But it also says, parents, like, take care of your children. That's a commandment, right? So it's not a right for you to just recklessly go out here and destroy the lives of children. Like, you, you have a responsibility for that. And that's a whole different subject, but it's criminal to a certain degree. 
But I look at it this way, right? I'm always optimistic. I've had the wonderful opportunity of befriending and mentoring young people because of a perceived void in their lives. So that is a blessing, right? For me to be able to stand in the gap for a parent who couldn't. So we're not like blaming parents, blaming guardians because life happens and it happened to my mother, right? It happened to me. But the opportunity is there to stand in the gap until that parent can stand there again. That's the beauty of community. So you see a direct correlation between your own upbringing and the difficulties that you had in your own family of origin and your ability to do your work now. Absolutely. Isn't that funny how that works? It is beautiful how it works. It's beautiful how, like I say, God can fill a void in anybody's life and he can fix anything, right? So nothing broken and nothing missing. And the, the, the beautiful idea is that you get to choose your family. I have like 12 kids <laughs> that have families of their own that I met in high school when they were 15 and now they're 25 and Ruben is 30. You know, Brandon is turning 30 soon. And, you know, Raquel's, I'm a grand mentor now, you know, Raquel had a child. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that is that had I not gone through what I had gone through, had they not gone through their journeys, ours would have never intersected. And so now we're family and we choose each other. We choose each other. That's that's the beauty of that is we get to choose each other. Have you ever come across, I'm sure you have, but... I'm curious about the details. A kid who was in trouble and needed your help to intervene? Yes, absolutely. It's a few. How did you handle it? That is a long story. And, you know, there's a, uh, well, some stories are to be um, told in private chambers, I think. But I think there was one young person in particular, two, actually, and they remind me of each other. One who just needed to be removed from her home um, because she was being abused. Uh, And we gave her a camera, a flip camera, and she was able to record the abuse. Wow. Through audio. And I'll never forget hearing that, but it was, she was in our film program, our after school film program, and we gave her a flip cam and said, the next time it happens, just record it, you know? That's the power of taking over your life, you know? And I reported it. I mean, I was new to the neighborhood and just didn't know any better. I guess I didn't know the community politics at the time. It was a pretty big deal, but it ended up rescuing a young woman from a very painful, abusive situation, and I don't regret it. There was another young lady who had issues with some neighborhood organizations, and she was stuck at a Ralph's. And couldn't get out. And they were waiting for her outside. These were grown men, and this is a young lady, waiting for her. And she called me and ended up sending an Uber to pick her up out of the back of the store and got her, you know, safely out of there. I think that you can't be afraid to walk with these young people through, to be in the trenches with them and to kind of show an infuriated strength and a relentless attitude that is devoid of fear because it's justice at the end of the day. It's justice that we take care of these young people. It's justice that we protect them. And when you walk with God, you shouldn't have a fear. It's like, that's my job is protect her. And I don't care what happens. I'm going to report it. 
and come for me. You know what I mean? Because I got God by my side. So if God is for me, who can be against me? But I think we can't be afraid to stand up for young people, to stand up for them and let them know they're valuable enough for you to stand in the gap for them. Yeah, so how long do you think you can continue to do this work? Is it going to be a forever thing? Yeah, this is a forever walk. This is (laughs) absolutely like... Yeah, this is, we're just getting started, but I think it's, you know, and I'm growing deeper and deeper into it, you know, just taking baby steps and understanding my place in it all. And, you know, humbly being a member of this community that fights for children in the foster care system and youth impacted by the juvenile justice system. I'm just a humble person just to be in the room. You know, I'm not looking for a seat yet at the table. I'm just happy to be in the room to listen to the the people who are leading the charge, you know, mainly the foster youth who are leading it, you know, and being there as a support system for them because the system needs to be um, reformed, you know, and I just, I just want to be on the team. Right. So how has it affected your personal life? Like in terms of dating or love or or relationships, because you're like on 24 seven, it seems. You know what? I, I, you know, I have a mentor, Harriet. Shout out to Harriet Zareski. Yeah, <laughs> um, she's always like, do you have a succession plan? Are you going to always be <laughs> executive director? Like, you know, what's going on with your life? You know, I use this work to inform what I write about. I have a television show I'm shopping now. I love to write about young adult experiences. But yeah, I just, I do think it, that there's balance. I need to find a little bit more balance. And ultimately, obviously, the person I marry is going to have to have a strong affinity toward this work because it is my life's purpose. And I don't see myself walking away from it, but I do need to find balance. Yeah, it would be nice to have a partner that supports you in Mm -hmm. what you're doing. It would be nice. Yeah, it would be nice. Yeah. You know, one of the questions that they ask you when you're in the CASA interview Mm is what kind of support do you have at home? Because there are going to be days, hard, hard days, when you come home and you will need support. And I was really lucky because the time that I became interested in becoming a CASA, I had a really good guy who is there for me. And I don't think I could do it without that. Mm. Yeah, I have a strong support system. My sorority sisters, um, shout out to Delta Sigma Theta, uh, my best friend, who was the former chair of my board, Camille, very good friend, Courtney, um, my very best friend, Larry, who lives in New York, who I've, who's known me since this started. I think, you know, my friend Jade, I think it's important to have best friends around you that support the work. But I think an intimate relationship is just different. And I'm working on that. I'm working on that. I am working on that. It took me a long time to find my guy, but I... But I found them eventually. They used to call me the United Nations of dating. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, but, but there's been a cease on that. Yeah. Right. That's good for you. Because I finally found the right guy. That's, yeah, that's and good for you. what about creatively? What do you think about? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I intertwine my creative flow during the day. So I write in the morning and then we do meetings and we do program and then we have labs. So we have our labs that run every day 
from four to six. And so it's basically a writer's room, you know, especially in a film and TV lab. So I use that time to go in and and write. Like, you know, I'm meeting Calvin tomorrow, who has this wonderful idea that he's working on. And him and I are linking up, you know, um, and we're going to write. And so it's it's seamless, right? The work is just seamless because it's all love. I love working with young people and I love writing and I've found a way to marry passion with purpose. So it's all seamless because it's like, hey, this is what life is as a creative. You know, you have to learn how to balance. And, you know, my mentee, Evelyn Rodriguez, she and I meet weekly too in the writer's lab. So there's no line of demarcation, I think when you're really doing what you love doing every single day, which to me is, you know, being a teaching artist. That's really what it is. Is there a kid who you feel that you failed? Uh, there's probably a couple of them. I mean, because um, we're not perfect, right? I'm, we're not perfect. We're purposed. So I'm sure I've failed every single one of them in some area or some degree. I mean, I think it would be quite arrogant to think that I served all of them 100%. So to be safe, I would say I probably have failed all of them, but I did my best. But if I think about someone that I've just outright failed, there is one, I think, that I may have failed completely. And you just didn't have the bandwidth or the insight or the... I didn't have the patience at that time Mm. to deal with his shenanigans, to be quite honest with you. I just had run out of patience for that level of like foolery. And I probably should have had more at that time, but I didn't. And I think that's something I'll have to live with. But, you know, I have a subset of, of youth I work with and I call them knucklehead nation. Okay. Um, <laughs> so those are the kids that like just have to go around the mountain three or four times before they get it. Right. Which is okay. But I think after a while, it's like, aren't you tired? And usually the knuckleheads graduate to become knowledgeable human beings, right? But some don't. That's reality too. Yeah, I know. Some don't. Mm -hmm. And that's true for all kids. Mm -hmm. I think it's particularly true for kids that have been in care. Mm -hmm. The trauma that they've experienced through their young life and adolescence often doesn't allow them to move as far as they should or could. Yeah, it doesn't allow them. That's true. And I think, but it's a choice sometimes too, not all the time, but it's the choices we make. And I think for that particular young person, we had just reached the end of our journey together. And some, you know, some relationships are a reason season in a lifetime. And I think it just was a season for us. And I've grown to accept that, you know, that I'm human too. And I'm not going to have all the answers and I'm not going to do everything right. I, I don't even sign up for that. Um, all I can do is be a human being doing the best that I can. And I probably will fail. Um, but I deserve grace just like I extend grace. I deserve love just like I you know, extend love. And I love the idea of having a omnidirectional mentorship is what we establish at Better Youth. Because at some point, I am the student too, right? I'm not always the teacher. And other times, you can be the teacher and you can be the student. But it takes the pressure off of having to kind of play this super savior, super woman role in the lives of 
young people that really just need you to show up as their authentic self and be as real as you can with all of your flaws and all of your perfections. Because that's what makes us complicated and beautiful human beings. And just showing up as, as you and, and admitting, you know, that's the key to humility is admitting. I don't, I don't get it right all the time. I don't have all the right answers. I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests. And if you can dig deep for this, although you're so frank, it's, you know. What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? That is interesting. Um, I think I would admit that I functioned through deep depression for many years. I'm good at hiding my intimacy with darkness. I'll say that. I I was good at hiding my intimacy with darkness and depression was something that I battled with for years, just from childhood, you know, my own childhood trauma, but learned how to function through it. And I think that can lead to unhealthy relationships and unhealthy behaviors. And I'm big on mental health and wellness and taking care of yourself and admitting, hey, I got to go. I got a therapy session, you know, when we're in like real to real meetings or whatever. Um, I admit, hey, I'm not okay, you know, and, and that that's okay to, to be not okay. And I think also probably by doing that, you're showing the kids that you're taking care of yourself. Taking care of yourself. And, you know, I had a homeless stint as well, which was really difficult to be operating better youth and still moving through it. Right. But I think, you know, all of these things, I just, I feel like I'm like a prophet moving in the space of being able to represent young people that I've also had the same experience or similar experiences, knowing what it's like to not have money and not have food and be homeless or how, how do you, how do you maneuver on that pathway and still get things done and still get things accomplished. And it doesn't come from a a place of um, sympathy when I'm speaking to them. It comes from a place of empathy because I know what it feels like. I know how difficult it is for you to come to a program and get on the train and you don't have any money. I know about the little tricks and things you got to do on the train just to get from A to Z. Like I get that. Um, And so, you know, I look at it all as an opportunity to just celebrate life because I feel like I'm a shepherd, right? Of kind of like the underdogs. I know that underdogs always rise. (laughs) (laughs) They become top dogs. And so when I see a young person that went from sleeping in front of a church and me bringing blankets to him and praying over his car that it would move and they wouldn't tow it to seeing him rise to work at Lionsgate and become a lead editor, you know, two or three years later, that's great. Yeah. Or John A, when, you know, I've seen her in her lowest moments and she's seen me in my lowest moments and we've always been honest with each other and to see her rise and be a Jimmy Kimmel now is like, and the same when she looks at me like, Miss Stewart's a writer on TV. She could go and watch an episode of something I've written. I've been really transparent with my journey with her. And it's like, wow, we made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we made it. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You're like, you're, you're just a firehouse. <laughs> <laughs> or no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> like, like you're a powerhouse filled with fire. I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to share. 
honestly, to share honestly. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I'd like to thank you for the work that you've done and the platform that you've given to young people so that their voices are amplified. That's really important. Volunteering with Peace for Kids, being a CASA, that's a lot, you know, and giving other people the opportunity to be heard. I want to thank you for that. I appreciate that because sometimes, you know, I'm like you, I'm an artist and just doing this podcast, I'm like, I'm winging it, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's getting out there. Yeah. Yay on us. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Okay. All right. You you have a good night. You too. Thank you, Johnny. Bye. Thank you, Sid, for sharing your story with us and the work that you do. It's incredible. Not only the opportunities you're giving to these kids, but helping them grow into who they are and to themselves. It's really phenomenal work. Thank you. Our next guest is David Ambrose. He's a national poverty and child welfare expert. 30 years ago, he was a homeless, malnourished child removed from his mentally ill mother's custody after years of neglect and abuse. He's a former foster youth and now advocate and activist and author of the memoir, A Place Called Home, which will be available on September 13th. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.